Shauna has said many times, scandalous love is here. And it's raised a few eyebrows. Well, we're talking about the scandalous love of God. And we're beginning a series now on the scandalous love of God. By the way, my name is Greg Boyd, if you're visiting here. Um, I suppose it's Greg Boyd even for those who aren't visiting here. But uh, I'm, I'm the senior pastor here and the main uh, teacher. And uh, we have taken a break from the book of Luke to do this series. It is as important and foundational a series as uh, we could possibly be involved in. I want to title this message, Love Is, because I'm just going to be laying the, the, the foundation for what's going to be following here. And I want to read from the book of John, 1 John, the epistle of, of, of John, uh, chapter 4, classic verse, the most profound verse in the Bible, I suspect. He says, whoever does not love does not know God. Whoever does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. God is love. Pray with me here for a moment. Father, I, I thank you for every precious soul that is in this auditorium right now, hearing this message. For every precious person who's listening through podcasts, watching through television or some other means, I thank you, God, for them, that their life trajectory has brought them to this point. Pray, Lord God, that this message would be, this, in fact, this whole series would just be revolutionary, revelatory, transforming. Invade us with your love, God. Right now, invade us with your love. Saturate us with your love. Baptize us in your love. Fill us with your love. Use this message, Lord God, to tear down strongholds that keep us insulated from your love. Lies that keep us viewing you as less than you truly are. Holy Spirit, infuse this word with your authority. We pray in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen, Amen, Amen. I suspect that there's at least some in this auditorium and some who are listening through podcasts or some other means who, when I read that passage, God is love, some part of their brain does something like this, goes blah, 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 wah, 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 wah. I've heard that a thousand times, heard a thousand sermons on it, got that in Sunday school, been there, done that, let's move on to something a little bit more profound. This is so elementary, it's boring. Or maybe some are, have even something a little more sinister where they'll say, oh, God is love, and they'll hear that voice from the preacher on Prince's Bride going, two, I've together today. And they sort of satirize it in their brain, and, and maybe they're hearing there's a part of their brain that's saying, oh, here we go, that lovey-dovey, nicey-nice, fluffy, fluff, fluff, fluff God, who just is always so, you know, you know loving, and that liberal view of God, and, and things of that sort. We think we, we understand this verse, God is love. And probably the first word I'm going to say in this series may be the most important word. And it's this. If you think that you understand the verse, God is love, let me assure you that you don't have a clue. Don't have a clue. Especially if you think you understand it. God's love is scandalous. Precisely because we don't have a clue. None of us do, really. In fact, we can't have a clue. And if you don't see that, well, then you really don't have a clue. <laughs> God's love, if you begin to understand what it's about, the first thing you understand, and you never lose this understanding, is that 
you can't even begin to get your mind around it. When it comes to God's love, I don't think any of us are even out of kindergarten. When it comes to understanding God's love, I, I, I don't think any of us, however profound your experience has been of God's love, and, and it maybe it's really profound, but I don't think any of us have had more than the, the, the most momentary glimmer of the full radiance of his magnificent, beautiful love. When it comes to understanding God's love, I think we're all pretty much in the position of a five-year-old Kind of like this, a five-year-old who just learned that one plus one equals two. And our relationship with love is sort of like this five-year-old relationship with nonlinear equations and how they map out the superposition of subatomic particles. Doesn't have much of a clue about that stuff. That's how we are with regard to God's love. We experience God's love the way an ant at the foot of Mount Everest might experience the grandeur of Mount Everest and the height of Mount Everest. The ant really doesn't have a clue. That's kind of where we are at with God's love. Yeah, we touch the foot of the mountain, but we don't at all grasp the height and the grandeur and the majesty of that mountain. We're sort of like, uh, our understanding of God's love is a bit like the understanding of a microorganism sort of floating out there in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. And how much does that organism understand about the, the width and the depth and the grandeur of the ocean? Not much. And that's pretty much where we're at when it comes to understanding God's love. We don't have a clue. If we have any clue at all, then we grasp that we don't have a clue. And if you're not there yet, then you really don't have a clue. See, I, I believe, I really believe, I, I've, I've over the years become convinced that God loves me. I don't think there's much in my brain that resists that anymore. It used to be, but not anymore. I believe God loves me. And I've had times where I've really experienced profoundly the love of God. The most recent time being this Good Friday service that we had. It was just beautiful. And, and God's love just saturated that place and I just felt overwhelmed by the love of God. It was profound. But the more profound your experience of God's love is, the more you realize that you're just scratching the surface. Experiencing God's love, if it's a genuine, authentic experience, it's a little bit like looking at a star-filled sky in some night where the moon isn't out and you're away from the city, you're out in the country and you see all those stars there. And if you'll let it, that experience can be overwhelming because it, it, uh, of the infinitude of the experience. As you look at those stars, you, you, you realize that you're seeing just a small, 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 small fraction of all the stars. And so it's almost like a teaser there. It, it points beyond itself. And the enormity of this incredible creation can just can just overwhelm you. What you see points beyond itself, and that's the most important aspect about what you see. That's how experiencing God's love is. If it's an authentic experience, then it never gets to the point where you say, oh, been there, done that, or I got that now. No, it always, it always points beyond itself. However much you experience, you realize that there's an infinite more that you have not experienced. And that really is the most important dimension to God's love. Uh, on uh, Friday night, I, I, when I had this experience, a verse came to me on our Good Friday service. I shared a little bit of it at the end of the service. Uh, the verse is Ephesians chapter 3, and Paul says this. It's so profound, so profound. He says, I pray that you, you believers, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And look at this. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. 
that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. To know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. Think about that. A couple things to note about this passage. First of all, he prays that we would have power, a supernatural power, that God would empower us to get some grasp of the love of God. It takes spiritual power to do this. It takes a supernatural anointing to even begin to understand the height and the depth and the width and the length of the love of Christ. Left to our own natural thought, our own fallen minds, we can't believe this. We can't begin to grasp it. It takes supernatural power because to our natural reasoning, it is strictly unbelievable. Our natural fallen mind will always hear this message. If we're hearing it accurately, our natural fallen mind will say, no way. That's too good to be true. Surely the preacher is giving us one side of the story. Surely he's giving us an over-optimistic spin on this. It's impossible that the truth would be that beautiful. Maybe this is true for others, but it's not true for me. Our natural mind, our fallen mind, will always do that to insulate us from the beauty, the infinite beauty of this reality, the reality of God's love. And so against that weakness, that's how we're weak. We're so weak, we can't begin to understand the depth of his love. Against that, Paul prays that we'd have power, a supernatural power to begin to know how wide and long and high and deep is this love of Christ, and that, that, we, that we'd be established in that. And he prays that we would have the power, the supernatural power, to know that which is beyond knowledge. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. How do you know something that is unknowable? The answer is, you know that which is unknowable when you bump up against its unknowability. When you realize that you can't know it, now you're beginning to know it. When you realize you don't have a clue, now you're starting to get a clue. That's what God's love is like. You begin to know the width of Christ when you begin to understand the width of Christ's love. When you, when you begin to realize that it goes an infinity to the east and an infinity to the west. So that if you were to travel a trillion miles in, in, in that direction or a trillion miles in that direction, you haven't even really gone one inch in terms of comprehending the love of Christ. When you understand that the love of Christ is wider than you can possibly imagine and that you can't ever begin to get your mind around it, well, now you're beginning to understand the width of the love of Christ. You begin to understand how long, the length of Christ's love. When you begin to understand that it goes an infinity in front of you and it's an infinity in back of you. And so that if you were to go 100 trillion years traveling in one direction or the other, you haven't even begun to cross a centimeter of the distance that would comprehend the love of Christ. When you get that and realize it's beyond your wildest dreams, how long and how wide is the love of Christ, well, now you're beginning to get a clue. And you begin to understand what the height of Christ's love is. Remember, Paul says, I want you to understand the width and the length and the height and the depth. You begin to understand the height of Christ's love when you begin to understand that that it goes up forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. So if you were to take a rocket ship and go a trillion, trillion, trillion to the trillionth power light years up, you haven't even left the ground in terms of traversing the height of Christ's love. It's beyond anything you could possibly think or imagine. It's better than you could possibly dream. And you begin to understand the depth of Christ's love. When you begin to see that however far down you go, go down a trillion, trillion, trillion to the trillionth light years, 
go down that far and you haven't even covered one inch. If you were to fall into a bottomless pit and fall for a trillion, trillion to the trillionth power light years, a free fall just falling down in that abyss, after all that time, you haven't even gone one inch in terms of understanding God's love. However low you go, he's lower. However high you go, he's higher. However wide you go, he's wider. However long you go, he's longer. Not just that, but he's an infinity longer, an infinity higher, an infinity wider, and an infinity deeper. And when you grasp that, now you're beginning to get a clue about the enormity and the beauty and the intensity of God's love. When you know that it surpasses all knowledge, now you're beginning to know it. And now you're beginning to, when you really believe that, when you really believe that God's love is like that, without any ifs, any buts, any qualifications, when you believe that, you begin to manifest the power to understand what goes beyond understanding. That is the love of Christ. God's love. When you begin to see that you can't possibly outrun it, you can't outjump it, you can't outfall it, you can't outlast it, and you certainly can't outsin it, now you're getting a clue. That's why it's scandalous love. When you begin to see that you can't comprehend it, you can't grasp it, you can't limit it, you can't qualify it, you can't condition it, you can't temper it, you can't moderate it, it's scandalous love. Now you're beginning to get a clue. God's love, you can't restrict it, you can't confine it, you can't define it, you can't refine it, it's scandalous love. It's beautiful. It's beyond anything you could possibly imagine. And when we bump up against its unknowability, now we're beginning to know it. When it seems too good to be true, now you're finally starting to get a clue. In fact, this should be a little rhyme that we say all the time. If it, feels too, if it seems too good to be true, then you're having a clue. Because it means that you're heading in the right direction. And you're, you're bumping up against some of the lies in your head that are blocking you from fully entering into this. To our fallen mind, it's always going to seem too good to be true. But to suppose that, in fact, there's any limit to it is to limit God and to take away some of the beauty of the love that, in fact, he is. So it seems to me it's good to start at the very beginning of this series. Since this is the main thing we're up against. We think we know. We think we got it. We think this is old news. It can never be old. It can never be old. It, we can never say it good enough. And so it, here at the beginning of this series, it seems like it'd be good just to break that stronghold. Want to break that stronghold? I want to break that stronghold. You want to break that stronghold? Let's do it right now. And, and, and there's power in our words. So I want you to repeat after me. If this is in your heart, repeat after me. If it's not in your heart, don't, because I don't like to manipulate anybody. But if this is in your heart, repeat after me. We don't have a clue. We don't get it. We are microorganisms. And God's love is an infinite ocean. Father, empower us to know the height and the depth and the width and the length of the love of Christ that passes all knowledge. In Jesus' name, amen. Stronghold be broken. Amen. Amen. And some of you I know have got butts in your head. But, 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 okay, you know, we'll deal with the butts later. Right now, just cancel the butts. Kick that butt out of your head. It's time to kick butt. <laughs> the butts in your head, kick them out. You don't have to understand it, but just know that this is what Christ reveals, and Christ is the revelation of God. And Paul says we're to be established and rooted in this. I pray you be established and rooted, founded, solid in that love of Christ. That passes all knowledge. In other words, this is to be the foundation for our life. Nothing else. 
The source of our security, well-being, happiness, contentment should be this and nothing else. To the degree that God's love, that infinite love, that unknowable love is the foundation of my existence, I will have a sense of well-being and contentment regardless of what happens in my life. I'm always surrounded by the love of Jesus Christ. To the extent that we're not rooted and grounded in Christ's love, we're going to be rooted and grounded in something else. Like the stock market, or our house, or our good looks, or our reputation. And that is so shallow and temporary and, and iffy. No, no. Put all your eggs in this basket. Be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. The whole point of this series is to wake up. Wake up anew, as for the first time, to the beauty and the grandeur of this incredible love. And to be transformed by the beauty and grandeur of this love. And to do that, we've got to confront all the obstacles in our head that insulate us from entering into that love. One of the major obstacles we have in our head that keep us from really being transformed by this love and believing this love is that we're messed up on what it is to, 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 to love. We're, we got, we're, as I said last week, didn't I say it last week or the week before? We're all screwed up. Somebody say amen. We're all messed up. Okay, and we're really messed up when it comes to love. We got messed up ideas on love, some more, some less, but to some degree, we're all screwed up and polluted by the world when it comes to understanding what love is. It can happen a million different ways, but here's one of the ways it can happen. Dad says he loves you. Over and over again, maybe. He says, I love you, but he's never around. And there's never any kind of bonding there. There's, there's actually detachment. Or the parents say, I love you. But around third grade, it becomes very clear that that love seems to go up or down based on how you did in gymnastics or on your test score or on your musical instrument or in some other sport. The love is conditional. Oh, that, that's what love means. Or it could be worse than that. Somebody in your life is saying, I love you all the time, and then they beat the crap out of you because you did something wrong, or maybe they sexually abuse you, all the while telling you they love you. And so we, we, we then grow up thinking that love looks like that. Love gets associated with detachment. Love gets associated with performance, or love gets associated with uh, abuse. And then you're told God is love. Well, that's not necessarily good news if your view of love is all screwed up. And then we impose our polluted views of, of love onto God. And just jaded. Uh, there's a lady I, I knew a number of years ago at the f first church I was uh, associate pastor at. And she came to church, gave her life to the Lord. It was beautiful and had a, a beautiful one-year-old uh, daughter with her. And, um, you know, and, and, and it was just good. But then we noticed that she'd always have these kind of bruises and bumps and stuff on her. And, and we'd ask, well, what happened? And, and she'd always have some awkward excuse. So oh, I fell down or I bumped my head. And I thought she was like the most, you know, clumsy person on the planet. But over time, you begin to suspect that something else is going on. And one day she shows up with some teeth missing. And I'm not buying the story that she tripped. And she finally confesses that she's living with this guy who just whenever he drinks or goes into a rage, beats her up. We do an intervention and get her involved in a woman's shelter and she gets out and it looks like things are going to be fine now, but she goes back to this guy. And that happens several times. I remember talking to her one time saying, why do you go back to this guy? And, and, and you know, allowing him to do this to you and then on top of that, your daughter is getting old enough to notice this stuff and that's putting stuff in her head. Why do you do that? And her answer was, well, because, because he loves me. Tells me he loves me. He's always sorry. So in her twisted, sick world, love did not rule out vicious abuse. And I don't know what her background was. She ended up 
leaving the churches, we got more aggressive on, on insisting that something be done about this, and she finally chose him. But I, 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 I can promise you, guarantee, that some kind of abuse happened in her background. She learned that somewhere. And now her daughter's learning it as well. And it's tragic. If that's your view of love, well then, dear God is love. Well, it would not rule out God abusing us. In fact, I'm convinced that a lot of traditional theology is a result. It's a working out of people who've got jaded views of love and they impose that on God. And so when, when they say God is love, well, it doesn't rule out a whole lot of terrible stuff. So you've got a lot of twisted theology in the church tradition. And all of it's supposed to be part of God's love. For example, here's a quote from Darren Hufford. He's a father, he's a pastor, he's the author of this book uh, called Misunderstood God. Uh, Scott Bourne quotes him in a devotional he wrote for this, this, uh, this week. Um, and I encourage you to get on the bridge, uh, Woodland Hills Bridge, where Scott will have devotionals uh, 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 every week. Um, and it will go a little deeper than I can go in the message. And he has this quote. Listen to this. This man says, Could you imagine me holding my nine-month-old son Jude in my arms and telling him that under no circumstance would I share my glory with him? It's mine. What if I lovingly told him that if he disobeyed me again and again, I'd pour gasoline on him and light him on fire. What kind of father would I be if I explained to him that he needed to give me 10% of everything he had or I'd withdraw my hand of protection from his life and allow the fires of hell to swallow him? What if I told one of my daughters that she was put here on earth to be my servant or slave? Could you picture me telling my children that I've written everything about me down in a book and unless they read it every day of their lives, they're never going to know me? What parent would purposely inject their, chi their child with a terrible disease as punishment for disobedience? What father would turn his head away from his son or daughter the moment the child made a mistake? Any parent who acted like this we think is a poor parent, in fact, a criminal parent, a, a deranged parent. And yet you find just this sort of thing being ascribed to the God of love throughout the church tradition. And God is love, but he also does this kind of stuff. In fact, in some theologies, it's even worse than this. Some theologies, God not only pours gasoline on you and sets you on fire, but it'll keep you in flames eternally. And some theologies, it's even worse than that. Because in these theologies, God predestined that that would happen to you. He created you for the purpose of setting you on fire eternally and watching you scream in the flames. Why? Because it gives him glory. What kind of glory is that? What kind of parent would ever do that? And yet that's... We're taught that that's supposed to be the God of love. Beautiful, that, that's a beautiful God, a God of love, God of grace, God of, 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 of beauty. You're supposed to worship that God and be excited about spending eternity with that God who lights people eternally on fire and created them for that very purpose. And see, people will, out of fear, do that. No one wants to be set on fire for eternity. So if he's holding the match and he's got the gas, I'll bow down. And, and I'm supposed to say, you're beautiful, you're lovely, you're gracious, you're glorious. Could not possibly be more loving than you are. But to the extent that I'm at all healthy, I can't really believe that. I'll say it, but I can't really believe that. To the extent that I'm healthy at all. If someone can think of a more twisted view of God, I'd like to hear it because I can't think of one. And that, that's supposed to be the God of love. And, and given pictures like that about God's love, Given pictures like that, there's times where I have nothing but compassion towards atheists. I mean, if that's the, the view of God that they're rejecting, I almost want to applaud them for their integrity. Um, 
We've got messed up ideas on God, on what love is, and we impose those on God. And even apart from our jaded experiences that screw us up about what love is, even apart from that, we get messed up. Because the word love is just so ambiguous. We use it to cover everything. Think about it. You say, oh, I just love my, the, the, the garden I planted. I just love my plants. I love my flowers. And then you say, I love my house. No, I just love your hair. Oh, I love that car. That's really, I love the way you sing. Okay, so we use love to cover that. Then when I say, I love my wife. I love my wife. But I love you different than I love the plants. Uh, and then I say, I love my buddies. I got my buddies. We play in a band together. I love these guys. I say, I love you. But I also say, but I don't love you like my wife. All right, so let's get that clear. I love my wife different, but I use the same word. I love my kids, but I love my kids different than I love the guys in the band. I love the kids, guys in the band different than I love my wife. And I love my wife differently than I love the plants. I love my dog, but that's different than my wife or buddies, kids, or, or plants. You know, but it's the same word that we use for everything. And then nine out of ten times the word love is used in songs today. It doesn't mean any of those things. It's about having sex. I want to make love. Well, what was your name again? Or something like that. <laughs> and you're making something, but it's not love. <laughs> You know, and then we're taught to love our enemies. We're to love our enemies. How are we supposed to love our enemies? Because maybe we don't even have the affection towards the enemies that we have for a plant. You know, maybe there's nothing we like about them, but we're taught to love our enemies. And so it just gets screwed up. Gets screwed up. And then we're taught God is love. God is love. What does that mean, God is love? Does God love us the way that we love our plants? Does God love us the way we love our kids, or the way we love our spouse, or the way we love our friends, or maybe the way we love our enemies? What does it, what does it mean to say God is love? Now, here's where knowing a little bit of the Greek helps. A lot of times I think scholars who know the original language make a little too much of that. Well, if you knew the original language, you know that I'm right. <laughs> it's kind of a card you can play whenever you're you know, cornered. And so I think a lot of times they exaggerate the importance of knowing the original language. But once in a while, just once in a while, it really is important. And this is one of those things. Because we've got one word, love, that covers everything. There's four different words in Greek that, that can be translated love. First of all, there's storge. Storge simply means affection. I love your car. And, you know, I'm not in love with your car, but I just like your car. I like your hair. I like my plant. Love my dog. It's affection. Or approval. It can mean approval. Philos is a different word, and it means friendship. The kind of love that you have when you have something in common. I play with my guys in the band, and we have this in common. We make music together. We make beautiful music together. We're friends. And, you know, it's different than storge. Then there's eros. We get the word erotic from it. It means romantic love. And it can mean sexual passion, passionate, burning love. This is the kind of love I have with my wife, and only with my wife. And by God's design, we're only supposed to have that with one other person. Now, these kind of loves are obviously not mutually exclusive. You can storge something about a person that otherwise you really despise. You know, oh, I just love Osama bin Laden's beard. <laughs> you know, okay, you can storge his beard, but then you prove anything else about him. You know, so storge can stand by itself. You can storge stuff about strangers and even enemies. But then there's philos, uh, friendship. And usually when you have friendship, there's things you storge about people, you like about people, but it goes beyond that because you have a shared experience, a shared, shared something in common. It doesn't mean you storge everything about the person. My friend Dave, he's the lead singer in the band uh, that I play in, Not Dead Yet. And um, I, I storge a lot of things about him. You know, and I, I, I love sharing this experience with him, but, yeah, sometimes his breath I don't storge. Forget about it. It's just not... <laughs> By the way, insulting is our love language, so I'm just getting even for... I owe him a bunch of stuff. That's why I said, okay. And then there's this other, uh, this other word. Oh, and then a, a good marriage, by the way. Good marriage. Should include all these. 
In a good marriage, you storge, hopefully you storge some things about the person, you have affection, you, you like some things about them, and you should have a friendship with them, a deep friendship. But on top of that, the icing on the cake is eros, this romantic passion. And then there's a fourth word, and it's the word agape. It's the most important kind of love. Paul Eddy, that great scholar, who's also on staff here and at, at Bethel University, he defines agape this way. It's other-oriented, self-sacrificial, choice-based love. Oh, that's good. Other-oriented, self-sacrificial, choice-based love. The only thing I like to add is this. Agape love ascribes worth to another at cost to oneself if necessary. That's agape love. Agape love is based on choice. It's not based on something you find in the other person. It's based on a decision you make. You don't have to storge anything about a person in order to have agape love towards them. You may not like anything about them, but you can still ascribe worth to them. And you reflect that worth by how you think about them, how you speak about them, how you speak to them, how you treat them, and things of that sort. You can agape love somebody and you don't have a philos relationship with them. They're not friends. In fact, maybe they're even enemies. That's why Jesus tells us to agape love our enemies. We don't philos them. They're not friends, but we can still have an other-oriented, choice-based, self-sacrificial stance towards them. And you certainly don't, shouldn't, eros everybody. But we are commanded to agape everybody. Agape is the only kind of love that isn't based on something you find in another person, and it's not based on any kind of a feeling. Yet, the people who practice agape, other-oriented, self-sacrificial love, if you practice it consistently, it's not based on a feeling, but you will find that there is a joy, a depth of joy that rises in your heart and a warmth of feeling towards others that goes beyond anything that storge can give you and anything that philos can give you, and it's very different from what eros can give you. But it's not based on any kind of feeling. The most basic command of the kingdom person of the Jesus disciple is to love everybody like that. Agape love. All people, all times, all situations, no exceptions, no ifs, ands, or buts. To have this other-oriented stance towards them. And the reason we're to love like that is because God is like that. That's what it means to be godly. We love like God loves. God loves in an agape kind of way. Which brings us back to the verse we started with, 1 John 4, 8. God is love. God is agape. Notice it doesn't say that God just loves. Verb, it says God is love. Noun. God's essence is love. It's, it's who he is in the core of his being. God, from eternity past to eternity future, is this unsurpassable joy that's rooted in this unsurpassable expression of other-oriented love. As Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, even apart from the world, God is, in his innermost essence, this love. God, God's love isn't just something he does. It's who he is. For God, love is not, first and foremost, a verb. It's a noun. God verbs love because God is the noun love. And if you get that point, then you'll get this revelation, and it, this is the foundation for everything. This will confront every lie in our head if we'll simply let it. If you, if you get that God is love, then you'll realize why it is impossible, impossible, metaphysically impossible, for God to stop loving you on the basis of something you did or on the basis of something you're doing or on the basis of that deep, dark, vile secret that you've got that no one knows about. God loves you because he is love. It doesn't go up and down and prove a little bit or detract a little bit based on what you're doing. 
No, it's, it's not a storge kind of love. It's not a philos kind of love. It's not an eros kind of love. God is agape love. It's impossible for God to turn the off button on that because to do so would mean he's no longer God. The devil will try to drive a wedge between you and that kind of love of God because that's how he keeps you in bondage because all freedom ultimately is a matter of letting the love of God in. But that's the devil doing it. That's not God. God's love is agape. It's not storge. He may storge things about you. He may like things about you, but there may be a lot of things about you he doesn't like. In fact, there may be things about you he loathes, he despises, precisely because he's got agape love towards you, and he sees that these things are destroying you. He may not storge a lot about you, but that doesn't keep him from loving you. And you may not have a philos relationship with God. You may not be a friend of God. He wants to be your friend, but you may, in fact, be an enemy of God right now. You may be declaring war on God. So he doesn't philos you, but he does agape you. He, he has that, that, that other-oriented love for you. He's still for you, not against you. And God may not eros a lot about you. He does want an, a, a sort of eros relationship with us. The Bible describes it as a husband-wife kind of romance. There's a romance dimension to this. There certainly is passion involved in this. He wants a passionate relationship with us. And you may not have that now. In fact, you may be passionately against God. But he's still passionately for you. Because his love is agape. You may right now be doing everything that God hates. You may be a mean, nasty, vile person. Maybe you gossip. Maybe you judge others. Maybe you are debaucherous and you're immoral and you're greedy. Maybe you're violent and you're murderous and you're full of hate. And God hates all of that. But if he hates all of that and he does, it's because he loves you. No ifs, ands, or buts. There's nothing you could possibly do that would get God to love you less than than he loves you right now. Right now, God is God. That's all I'm saying is God is God and God is love. Which means right now, this moment, you are the object of a love that is wider and higher and deeper and longer than you could possibly ever fathom. You may be at war with God right now, and and that's a bad state to be in. Oh, get out of that state. But when you become a friend of God, and I pray you will, it won't make God love you more. It just means that God's love will now start to have some benefit in your life. His love for you right now is perfect. That love was so intense, it led him to become a human being, set aside the prerogatives of heaven, become a human being, and dive into hell for you. Take on himself, our hell, our sin. He becomes the opposite of himself. There's infinite distance between God and sin. He becomes that. And the infinite price he paid reflects the infinite intensity of his love for you and for me. That's why it says this in 1 John. This is how we know what love is. Okay, This is the ultimate definition of agape love, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That's how you know what agape love is. You may not have any other clue in your life what agape love is, but look to Jesus. While we were yet enemies, the Bible says Christ died for us. While we were yet lost, when we didn't want anything to do with God, he became, crossed his infinite distance, became a human being, and on Calvary took on our sin, our judgment, our condemnation, in order that we could be reconciled with him. That the cross reveals who God is. Because the infinite price he paid reveals the infinite intensity of his love. And don't worry if you can't understand it, because that's the point. When you realize that you can never get your mind around this, well, now you're starting to get a glimmer of that love. Calvary is always the ultimate expression of God's character, of God's love, because God is love. God is Calvary. To you, to me, to all people that have ever been. That's who God is. There's no off button to that. Nothing you do will ever change that. I believe the most important act of discipleship is to know this. Know this. 
that which passes knowledge. The most important act of discipleship is to cultivate an awareness of this moment by moment. Don't worry if you can't get it because it's not gettable. Just rest. The most you can do is rest and yield to its ungettability. There's a word for you. The ungettability of God's love. When you realize it's ungettable, then, then you've, you're starting to get it. And, and just to rest in that and walk in that. Don't try to feel it. Don't try to understand it. Certainly don't try to achieve it. But don't suppress it. Just be aware of it and surrender to it. And say yes to the love of God. Right now, we are, we are, surround, we are in a, the bottom of an ocean with all this ocean pressure. And the ocean is God's love. And we're little microbes, as it were. He's pressing in on us with that love. And just know that. Just know that. It's reflected in Calvary. Calvary defines who God is. Calvary defines who you are. I'll say more about that next, next week. Say yes to that. All freedom, all transformation, all the ways that God wants to beautify our life are the result of our saying yes to that. Daring to believe in the power of God, overcoming our, the weakness of our flesh, to dare to believe that God really is that beautiful and infinitely more than that. Etc., etc., etc. That's all throughout eternity. That's, that, that's as good as it's going to get. Yeah, it's even more than that. It's even more beautiful than that. When you get that, etc., 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 now you're beginning to get a clue. I'm going to close in prayer. Um, and and uh, as I do that, I just want to say that the altar will be open after the service. If you want to come forward and receive prayer or just pray on your own, maybe to overcome some of the obstacles in your brain that are right now going but, 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 and you want help kicking the butts out of your brain, uh, then come up here and, uh, and, and pray with these folks. Uh, I encourage you to stop by and support the AWOL missions team and support uh, Freedom in Christ, that, that beautiful ministry that's there. Also, we have a, a little assignment sheets. If you want to uh, digest this more throughout the week, stop by at the Hub. All that stuff is there. But Father, I pray in Jesus' name that we'll get that we can't get it, that we'll get a clue that, that we're clueless, that we'll know that we can't know it. And I pray, God, that we would never, ever, ever for a second get used to this, get bored with this, grow lax on this, get too comfortable with this. Father, I pray that we would always be struck anew and overwhelmed anew by the infinite power of your love. And that you would just, that we would that we, that just be aware that we're squished, squashed, submerged, drowned in your love every, every, every second of our life. You're more beautiful than we could possibly ever speak or think. Help us to always be aware of that and to walk in that moment by moment and to yield to you moment by moment. It changes everything. You change everything. You are God. God, help us to never put limits on that, to make you after our own image or the image of our mom or dad or ex-husband or abusive boyfriend or, or, or sexually deviant babysitter. or Whoever jaded us, God, help us not to impose that on you, but to let Calvary define everything about you, everything and everything about us. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's lovers said, God bless you guys. Go out and be loved and love others. Amen.